Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Jeff, and along with Brian, we are the hosts of this program. Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast. My name is Brian, and alongside is Jeff. Jeff, how are you doing this morning? Hey, doing real well, Brian. Yeah, looking forward to uh, today's discussion about truth. Yeah, the truth we want to talk about. And this is a podcast where we really hope to send across the message from God's Word that there's only one standard of truth. And I think we could all agree that when we look out in the religious world today, there are so many different standards of truth or so many different ways in which truth has been modified. And so, Jeff, for some, and we'll kind of get into this in more detail, right? But the truth is subjective, right? It might be what you and I think it is versus, of course, what the Bible says. Yeah, exactly. And of course, as, as we kind of dig into this, we'll talk about, as you said, different standards of truth or how truth is kind of being turned in some cases into a very subjective kind of thing like my truth and your truth, sometimes we hear today. But uh, we'll, we'll save that as we get into it later. Yeah, and you know, this is an age-old problem, going back to the time of Christ when the truth that we live under today, the law of Christ, the new covenant, was first established. For our listeners, if you have your Bible handy, uh, turn over to John chapter 18, and this is a section of scripture that talks about when Jesus had been arrested and he was put on trial, if you will. And we won't go back to verse 28, but if you'd look at 28 up into verse 33, you'll see that Jesus, it says, was taken to what's called the Praetorium in the early morning. Pilate comes out and asks the Jews about what accusation they're making against this man, against Jesus. And he tried to tell the Jews that they should take him and, and try him according to their law. And the Jews didn't want that because they wanted to put Jesus to death. And the Jews could not put anyone to death. It had to be under the Roman law. And so let's pick up in verse 33 of John chapter 18, where it says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king for this cause I was born. And for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now notice what Pilate said in verse 38. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. So this central question that Pilate asked, What is truth, is what we want to focus on. Uh, really, in this podcast. And, and so, you know, in general, if you think about it, certainly when it comes from, to, you know, spiritual considerations in our life, it's a common question, right, that we all ask, not just as it relates to the Bible and that truth, but really, 
you know, any subject we study. So think about, you know, in school, all of us were taught the truth on many subjects. If you take a class, you know, beyond, let's say, grade school, high school, you go to college, you study engineering, you study information technology or, or many other subjects, I think we would all agree and understand that you have to receive the truth on these subjects. Otherwise, you would not be qualified to work in these different fields if you weren't taught the truth on that particular subject. Uh, when you think about going to court, here in the United States at least, they have those who are testifying to raise their right hand and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so I think we could all understand that when it comes to the judicial system, the truth is so very critical. Because if you have somebody up there giving lies, it distorts what happened in a given case. And so the court wants to make sure that everybody that testifies is telling only the truth. It's interesting, though, I find when it comes to spiritual matters, Sometimes people make the mistake of saying, well, there is no absolute truth. Kind of like Pilate, you know, was saying, what is truth? Well, one of the things that we know and we've emphasized on this podcast, Jeff, is that there is a standard, right? That there is one standard for truth. And if there's not, then what does it lead to? Just confusion. You know, so anyhow, God felt it was important to provide us with the truth. He sent his only son, Jesus, to give us an understanding of the truth. In fact, Jesus himself said, In John 18, verse 37, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. And so Jesus was the living word. Jesus showed what the truth was. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, here Paul tells Timothy that God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So, Jeff, I guess it makes sense, right? God creates us. He puts us here on this earth. It wouldn't make sense for him just to say, okay, we'll figure it out and everybody have their own standard of truth. No, he made sure that we knew what he expected by giving us his truth. Well, exactly. And I like your reference to you know schools and engineering because that's kind of my background. Uh, and there are certain, you know, we would use the word standards, you know, standard weights, measures, uh, standard measures of time. Um, and certainly within the engineering world, you know, lots of potential, you know, confusion or even catastrophe if you use different standards or no standard uh, is used. Uh, and yet when, as you said, people come to the, the topic of religion, uh, the tendency is to say, well, you know, that's your interpretation, or that's your truth, I have a different truth, or we all have different views of the truth. And again, as you said, just creates a a whole lot of uh, confusion. But as we would put forward, uh, as we would claim that there is objective religious truth, I mean, either there is or there isn't a supreme supernatural being out there. Either he did or he didn't, you know, create the universe. You know, either he did or didn't create man and does or doesn't hold man accountable. I mean, those those are objective kind of uh, things that, that, you know, they, they either are or they aren't. Now, of course, as we kind of go into our you know podcast today, Brian, I think one thing that I need to maybe caution, if I will, uh, our listeners is, you know, we're putting forth, you know, the Bible as indeed the trustworthy revelation of a supreme being. We're not really today going to justify that claim. 
We're just going to assert that claim that there is objective religious truth. It can be found in the Bible. Now, if our listeners are interested in digging into why that's a valid claim, uh, I would certainly encourage them to go back and listen to some of our previous podcasts, particularly episodes number 54 and 55. Those two particular podcasts, we talk about the Bible, uh, discuss its origins, talk about manuscripts, uh, translations, etc., and a number of different things related to, you know, how we got the Bible, how we can rely on the Bible as indeed our source of objective religious truth. So I just wanted to sort of caveat that before we uh, went forward. Yeah, appreciate that, Jeff, and look forward to being able to speak about these things. Yeah, in fact, let's just kind of get into it. Certainly, we would assert that today, uh, at least here in the United States, you know, we're living in a generation where this concept of truth, religious, spiritual truth, is certainly becoming a lot more subjective um, in terms of things that are viewed as being right and wrong, or being acceptable, or morality, etc. And so one of the first things we want to kind of point out, uh, a concept, if you will, is something called moral relativism. Now, that's a kind of a fancy, fancy phrase, but basically it's the belief that, you know, morality or standards of right and wrong tend to be culturally based uh, and subject to the whims of the culture. Uh, they're uh, subject to, you know, personal choice. But when you boil it all down, there really, and people would claim, there really is no thing that you might call universal truth or an absolute set of what's moral principles. Meaning, you know, I'll decide what's right for me and you can decide what's right for you. Or, you know, if something is true for me, I believe it. Or as I said earlier, well, you know, that's just your truth. <laughs> and I, I have my truth. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Isn't there the truth? And as we've noted, often that basically reflects a rejection of God or the existence of God or a rejection of the Bible. Uh, sometimes, for example, in favor of evolution, meaning if we're just you know, highly evolved animals with you know no real higher power to tell us what to do, well, we can do whatever we want, you know, subject to us coming together as a, as a culture or society or a tribe or, or whatever, or what we can get away with, <laughs> so to speak, uh, as evolved uh, animals. You know, basically, man is. They would say, you know, the highest standard of what's, you know, right and wrong, nothing above. Which, Brian, unfortunately reminds me of a passage or a quotation where everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And you can see that in Deuteronomy 12, 8, Judges 17, 6, and Judges 21, 25. And what it resulted in was just total chaos, anarchy, uh, pretty much people doing whatever they wanted to do. And you have all kinds of very horrific tales, for example, within Judges, you know, of the Israelites going out and doing what was clearly condemned in the pagan nations around about them. They were falling into themselves. This concept of moral relativism, uh, we certainly see it to some degree, for example, in the international business realm, where sometimes, you know, paying a bribe may be illegal, at least in some countries. But it's a standard practice uh, in some cultures. It's a cultural norm, we might say. 
or certainly here within the United States, we've seen some moral relativism and or cultural norms shift, uh, certainly in the area of uh, redefinition of what marriage constitutes. For instance, a marriage between a man and a man or between a woman and a woman, etc. Key point to keep in mind, this kind of moral relativism pretty much results in no standard of truth or a standard of truth that's different. Uh, which, in my mind, coming back to the engineering example, makes no sense because, hey, if I want to define a uh, you know unit of measure of a foot as being you know 12 inches, that's fine. But if you want to define it as 14 inches, or someone else want to define it as five inches, and I go down to the local hardware store and I need to buy you know eight foot long piece of wood, and I get it home and it's five feet long, it's like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, that that just doesn't work in the physical realm certainly doesn't work in the spiritual realm as well. We also notice that because of this moral relativism, things are always changing. You know, instability, confusion, and bottom line is people are now becoming more accepting of sin because everyone pretty much has their own standard and they do what is right in their own eyes. And hence, as a result, no one can really question it. Or they would say no one should question it because we're defining our own standards. All, all kinds of uh, you know, adverse things, bottom line, that results in the things that we would call sin, people accepting, just because it's a cultural norm, right? Yeah, and you know what's really scary? We see this in the United States, but it's really a world problem where this idea of moral relativism is absolutely permeated our society, where... You know, as we see in Isaiah 520, and we'll look at it later, right, about calling woe to those who call evil good and good evil. So people have redefined terms in such a way that it has totally flipped on its head what biblical definitions mean, and once again, allow people to justify their sinful behavior. Kind of sad, you know, but it is nothing, there is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said, right? This continues to be an issue. We're just seeing it accelerated even more of a rapid pace here in the United States. And, you know, one age-old issue when it comes to an assault on the truth, if you will, is that of situation ethics. And, you know, this once again was something that came up in the 60s, so it's not new. There was a book that was written by a gentleman named Joseph Fletcher called Situation Ethics, The New Morality. And that was actually written in 1966. And a couple of quotes from that book that he wrote kind of tells you what he's thinking and how it affected society in the 60s. And so the first quote, he says, the only principle to have intrinsic value is love. Therefore, a decision based on unconditional love is the right thing to do in any situation. So in essence, he's saying here, Love trumps everything else, right? Uh, Another quote from him says, Unconditional love is free from rigid restrictions that determine our morals. Love does not follow prescribed rules, he says. Instead, it evaluates each situation individually, avoiding blanket judgments. So if you let that sink in a little bit, once again, love trumps all things, right? And Based on the individual situation, love may overrule morals or any other law for that matter. And so 
thus the name situation ethics. So one final quote here, he says, in the end, if love is your intention, the end justifies the means. Scary statement. So what, what are some examples of this? Well, one example would be telling a lie because you love someone so much that you do not want to hurt their feelings. In this case, according to his teaching, you could justify lying because, once again, that overarching principle of love says you don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. Or how about staying in an unlawful marriage because children would be affected? So in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus gives the only reason that a couple can divorce, and that's if there is adultery in the marriage. In other words, one spouse is unfaithful and has sexual relations with someone outside of marriage. Jesus made it crystal clear in Matthew chapter 19 and Matthew chapter 5 that that is the only reason for divorce. So you could have a scenario where you have a couple that has been married and one of the two spouses was divorced because they were unfaithful to their previous mate and therefore they are not allowed to remain in the current marriage that they are in because it's an unlawful marriage and so therefore they should dissolve that marriage because they didn't have a right to be married to begin with. Well in this case situation ethics would say well think about the children out of love for not drastically impacting their lives by divorcing and would be harmful to them, they should be allowed to stay in that marriage. These are just a couple of examples where, you know, you can take this philosophy of man saying that love trumps all, the end justifies the means, to justify sinning or disobeying God's law for those reasons. So, so what are some of the consequences? Well, number one, it removes accountability and guilt. So if you say it's justified because of love, well, now you don't have to feel guilt because of it. Second consequence, man determines his own standard and ignores God's law. So in essence, man becomes his own God. Or as we just talked about with moral relativism, he defines what truth is. Uh, another consequence is that it results in the acceptance of sin because everyone has their own standard. So think about the confusion that causes, right? You have your standard, I have mine. That's just a pattern or a path, I guess I should say, for conflict thinking that way. The next one, difficult to determine the standard of truth. So once again, if everybody has their own standard, then what is the standard? In fact, that would even extend itself to civil law, right? If each person felt like what was right was different, or in certain situations, the standard can change based on love. Therefore, you shouldn't hold a person accountable and potentially jail them, right? And then ultimately, you know, the biggest consequence is spiritual death, right? So in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 25, it says, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. So Jeff, I guess the overarching philosophy or truth here, I guess I should say, it's not a philosophy, is that the end does not always justify the means, right? Well, exactly. And, you know, I've, I've heard of, you know, very extreme situations appealed to, to justify situation ethics. But as you said, if you boil it all down, it's very similar to moral relativism with, with each person sort of judging for himself. And, you know, who are you to condemn someone else for, you know, their particular choice? That's right. So that kind of takes us to another area, you know, in addition to moral relativism and situation ethics, 
Uh, and this area would be changing terminology or changing uh, definitions or redefining words. And again, certainly here within the United States, we've, we've seen a, a lot of attempts to basically change the meaning of words. Now, admittedly, language does, over time, naturally evolve, you know, based on, you know, societal trends. Certainly new words, you know, come into use, others sort of pass out of usage and become archaic. And yeah, sometimes definitions do shift. Uh, but today we wanted to highlight at least, you know, three, two, three words that people are like changing the definition intentionally to teach something different. And of course, uh, the definitions here we'll be using come from the uh, Random House uh, Webster's College Dictionary. One term that, that's been, you know, misused or try again, redefined, tolerance. Now, at least according to, you know, Webster's College Dictionary, uh, that word means a fair and permissive attitude toward those whose race, religion, nationality, etc. differ from one's own. Tolerance. But what some people have tried to redefine the term tolerance to mean accepting or condoning sinful behavior, regardless of whether or not it violates your beliefs. Meaning, if you do not accept this behavior, you are intolerant. And of course, we see that applied a lot to uh, the gay rights movement, the LGBTQ plus movement, that if you say anything against any sort of a person's, you know, sexual orientation or etc., oh, then you are quote unquote intolerant. Uh, similarly, uh, there's a, a term that's kind of, again, been kind of spun differently, and that's the word hate. Uh, according to the dictionary, to dislike, uh, to dislike intensely or passionately, feel extreme aversion for or extreme hostility toward or detest. Now, again, people have taken that and said, well, you know, if you disagree with someone or if you think they are doing something that's quote-unquote sinful, well, you must hate them. Of course, behind that statement is the assertion that, well, we need to be accepting of people with their sinful behavior, sinful relationships, which kind of, again, goes back to, you know, the redefinition of tolerance. Likewise, uh, here's a third word, uh, discrimination. Uh, defined action or policies based on prejudice or partiality. And again, people want to kind of, you know, twist that and, and redefine that as well. In terms of, you know, if we make some sort of statement based on God's word about what truth is, what people should do, shouldn't do, uh, and we make such a statement, well, you know, we are discriminatory. You know, we're discriminating. We're, you know, again, similar to redefining uh, hate uh, and, and tolerance. You know, some of the consequences of the accepting these kinds of worldly redefinitions, well, number one, it normalizes sin, makes it acceptable, makes someone feel guilty if they try to apply biblical standards to a situation or try to talk to people about their sin. Uh, there's certainly societal pressure to comply with these new norms about, uh, you know, again, sexual behavior, etc. And uh, again, like we've said so far all along, 
it certainly makes it difficult to determine what truth is. Now, I say difficult to determine. You know, for Bible believers, it's easy to understand the truth. But in a worldly context, you know, if definitions are shifting and things now need to be more tolerated, and if you say anything about it, you are saying hate speech or you're, you know, racist, sexist, you're a Nazi. I mean, it's all different kinds of, you know, word definitions being changed. It certainly makes it difficult to, you know, speak the truth to people who in many ways don't want to hear it. Brian Earl, you mentioned Isaiah 5. I'll highlight that for a little bit. Isaiah 5.20, which I think fits really excellent in this concept of changing word definitions. And I think you're even going to use it later on in our podcast as well. Uh, Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Which is basically what we're saying here in terms of uh, you know labeling certain you know behaviors and beliefs as oh, oh this is good this is something we should tolerate if you don't you're you know you're hateful brian back to you all right the next section we want to consider here in this discussion is how often sinful conduct is justified based on someone's background environment or understanding of the truth so sometimes you'll hear people make the statements they had a tough childhood, you know, based on the family, uh, could be based on the neighborhood that they lived in. Maybe they had poor health, whatever it could be. And so as a result, people will say, quote, they have a tendency towards that behavior. In other words, they were predisposed to sin. Now, there's no doubt there's some validity to predisposition to sin. I mean, you take a mother who is addicted to drugs and they have a baby in the womb, when that baby is born, they're going to have that same addiction, unfortunately. And you see these terrible stories about where they have to basically, you know, help the child go through withdrawal when they're born. So no doubt, if your father was a drunkard or something like that, yeah, you might be more inclined to drink as well, but does that mean it's justified? Or someone might say, they did not know it was wrong when they sinned. Well, that also could be valid, right? It's just like maybe you're driving your car and you're speeding and you didn't know the speed limit was 35 because you missed the sign or didn't see it. Well, the officer is still going to give you that ticket. But, you know, once again, it could happen that you didn't know something was wrong and you sinned. Anyhow, what are some consequences, though, if, of saying that it's okay because of that? Well, it leads to the justification and acceptance of sin. You know, it teaches that it's acceptable to not follow God's standard or live up to the standard that God has set for us because of these circumstances. And it really ultimately gives us approval to continue committing sin. When we look at the truth, what does the truth the Bible say? Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Think about that, an abomination, and something that's reprehensible to the Lord to justify those who are wicked. And as we mentioned, you know, some grow up in difficult circumstances. We don't want to minimize that. It does make it more difficult. You think about biblical examples of like Kings Hezekiah and Josiah, who had fathers that were extremely wicked. And if anybody had an excuse, it was them, right? I mean, we're talking about royalty, somebody who was in the, you know, the household of the king who led a nation. But God didn't accept that as an excuse. In fact, they themselves 
Hezekiah and Josiah were righteous men because they chose not to follow their fathers. And I'll just give our listeners the chapter of Ezekiel 18. If you want another good example of just read through Ezekiel 18, how it talks about that we not only do not inherit the sin of our fathers, but that we have examples of somebody who looks at their wicked father and says, I will not be that way. I understand what God wants me to do. I choose to be righteous. So Jeff, God gives us a path, right? And gives us through the truth a way out of some of these difficult situations. Right. Well, I appreciate you drawing a distinction between, you know, based on upbringing, genetics, parenting, lack of parenting, whatever. They may have, you know, some degree of ignorance or some proclivities or inclinations or tendencies, if you will, toward, you know, various behavior. Distinguishing between that and still being held accountable. Certainly we can have some uh, sympathy and empathy people in their backgrounds and yet at the same time the truth is still the truth and they need to you know comply uh, with the truth it kind of takes us to another section about the truth that has become very uh, pronounced if you will and that's the subject of quote-unquote fake news where via you know social media via you know broadcast television whatever the case may be uh, allegedly, you know, distorting the facts with false or misleading information. Of course, this, you know, concept of fake news, you know, recently publicized or popularized, I guess I should say, uh, in the uh, 2016 presidential election under the Trump presidency, etc. But really, it's not new, not new by any stretch. Uh, if instead of fake news, I were to use the terms gossip, hoaxes, Smear campaigns, disinformation, propaganda. If I use those terms, people might go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's it. We've, we've had that around for a long time. In fact, uh, Brian, according to one Wikipedia reference I found, it goes back at least as far as roughly 1300 B.C. Been around a while, hasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, really. 3,000 plus years ago, allegedly there was some mural in Egypt where the ruler portrayed himself as being victorious over one of the other countries. But in reality, he either lost or it was a, a draw in, in terms of military battle. So, you know, propaganda early on, thousands of years ago. So nothing new under the sun. Um, but I think the, the key point, though, is if you boil this all down, you know, whether we call it fake news, smear campaign, propaganda, whatever you want to call it, it all boils down to lying, you know, to present, presenting false information with the intention of deceiving, again, coming back to the Webster's uh, College Dictionary, or to convey a false image or impression. And certainly in our currently polarized political environment, you know, we see it happens a lot in the political realm, uh, where, you know, different, you know, quote unquote, news outlets maybe trying to push a certain narrative. And, you know, that, that's another common term that we're hearing today. You know, not that they are reporting facts and figures or the news, but they're pushing a narrative, spinning the truth. And you may have heard that term as well. But again, key point, you're trying to lie, you're trying to deceive. Uh, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 comes to mind. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. 
So often today we see in, in response to some of the quote-unquote fake news in social media, we're seeing something called fact-checking going on in social media, which interestingly enough, Brian, in a lot of cases, the quote-unquote fact-checkers are themselves in some ways spinning the truth or putting out you know, uh, propaganda, if you will, uh, subject to you know bias and as a result you know charges of censorship violations of free speech etc the bottom line though consequences of if you want to call it fake news if you want to call it disinformation propaganda in social media whatever you know consequences are you know the shaping of public opinion you know based on some of these false narratives uh helping to cause division certainly within the political realm with charges of you know racism and sexism etc you know division within the country uh and even to the point of motivate motivating actions for uh people that result in negative outcome and i'm thinking like you know race riots uh, as as you know one example but coming back to the truth coming back to the bible you know i'm reminded of numerous bible passages that basically condemn Various terms, gossip, slander, lying, fake news, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I like Proverbs chapter 6, uh, beginning roughly around verse 12, uh, where he's talking about a worthless person, a wicked man, walks with a perverse mouth, he sows discord. Uh, verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, yea, seven that, seven that are an abomination to him. Uh, ver verse 17, a lying tongue. Verse 19, a false witness who speaks lies and one who sows discord among brethren. So again, whether you call it fake news or, or something else, the spreading of uh, false narratives, basically in, in biblical speak, you're talking about lying and gossiping and it's all condemned. Right? Yeah, and it's interesting, you know, I saw a poll a few weeks ago as a result of all the fake news and distortion of the truth and as you mentioned, even bias among those who supposedly check the facts, something like 30%, 20 to 30% of Americans trust the news that they receive from their news channel. <laughs> so it's like at an all-time high of distrust and understanding more and more that people are spinning their own news, if you will, to help or to attempt to sway people in one direction or the other. So it's kind of sad. It is indeed. And as we said, you know, it is certainly polarizing the country from a political perspective, driving a wedge between different, you know, groups, classes based on, you know, wealth, color of skin, whatever the case may be. But bottom line is it is setting aside any sort of interest in truth, search for truth for whatever the narrative is that you want to push. That's right. And, you know, I think some recent U.S. polls kind of help illustrate a shift in beliefs by generation. A question was asked on this survey from a group called Barna. What is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. So this speaks to that moral relativism point we made earlier. So what is morally right and wrong changes over time based on society. Do you agree or disagree? So. If you look at the baby boomer generation, 12% believe that was true. If you look at Gen Z, which is the most recent generation now, it's doubled. So 24% 
believe that what's morally right and wrong changes over time versus 12% for that baby boomer generation. How about the question, what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. So once again, moral relativism. Well, that one's shifted over time, you know, from the boomers at 17%, Gen X 18%, millennials 23%, and it's come back a little bit with Gen Z at 21%. But it just shows you that over time, more and more people think that what is morally right or wrong depends on what an individual believes. Now, how about beliefs about moral issues by generation. For instance, Barna asked, do you agree lying is morally wrong? 61% of our oldest generation believe that. 54% of the baby boomers, 50% of Gen X, 42% of millennials, and only 34% of the latest generation believes that lying is morally wrong. Boy, what a shift there. How about abortion? Abortion is wrong. The oldest generation, 40% felt it was wrong. Whereas somewhere in the 20 percentile of the latest generation believed that it was wrong. So almost half. Uh, How about marriage should be a lifelong commitment between a man or woman? 66% of our elders or oldest generation believe that was true. Today, the latest generation, only 38% believes that to be true. And then the last question, homosexual behavior is morally wrong. The oldest generation, about 40% believe that that's wrong. And what's interesting is if you looked at this same poll 20 years ago, that older generation would have been like 70% felt it was wrong. But even among them, over time, they have changed their beliefs, where only 40% of the oldest generation thinks that it's it's wrong. And only 20%, Jeff, of this current generation thinks that homosexual behavior is morally wrong. Why is that? Well, I think if you looked, it's taught in schools, it's permeated every aspect of our society, you know, people redefining terms and just saying, oh, it's a choice, you shouldn't hate, and so on and so forth. And now 80% of people say that it's fine, it's not a problem, when once again, the Bible clearly condemns it. Yeah, and it's interesting, and, and I know our listeners can't see the, the graphs that you've kind of included in some of the reading material that we've uh, pulled together, but there are some cases, and if you listen carefully, like for instance with lying, a steady drop-off across the years. And I know that's not always the case, but in general, the overall trend, you know, over the last, you know, 20, 30, 50 years, uh, has been what we might call a decline in morality across, you know, these and, you know, lots of other dimensions. And, of course, coming back around to our subject, you know, truth. Well, if truth is relative, hey, that's fine. No big deal. What was wrong, you know, 50 years ago can be okay today. In fact, can even be embraced, uh, a source of pride. However, if there is a standard that's an absolute standard, which we believe there is the bible well the bible hasn't changed in the last 60 years you know whatever romans 1 said 50 years ago still says it today you know it's un, an unchanging uh standard even though the culture is kind of shifting out from underneath it so to speak you know brian we've been kind of talking about you know the bible in general truth uh worldly views you know the bible is a source of, of truth Versus, you know, various worldly views, changes in the world, changes in the culture. I think uh, in this next section, I think it would be useful if we kind of brought it a little bit closer to home. 
in terms of source of truth, standards of truth for religions and religious denominations and such. Now, a lot of our listeners might say, well, you know, the standard of truth, at least within Christianity, well, that, that's an easy answer. And people might say, well, obviously it's the Bible. But unfortunately, often, various religious groups, while they might claim that, will come along and either add or augment what the Bible says, or set aside what the Bible says by having various man-made traditions, or proclamations by various church councils, or various written creeds, or whatever the denominational uh, headquarters says, or the Pope, or a pastor, or whatever the local congregation decides is right. And of course, what we see is the proliferation of all different kinds of denominations. And in some cases, not even a, I don't know, Brian, I don't know quite what to call it, not even a denomination per se but uh, what some people might refer to as a community church or a uh, broadly viewed a Christian church. Uh, and we see a lot of those. You know, they're very popular today. And so we want to you know, spend a few moments you know, talking about uh, what has resulted in the religious world you know, within Christianity. Uh, we see a, you know, a number of congregations that you know, claim to be of Christ but they have all different kinds of appeals to people. Uh, a lot of them are all faith institutions. Uh, members have you know various uh, differing beliefs. Again, I mentioned you know the community church movement. Often there is you know the, these particular cases uh, a single uh, person as a leader, often called the pastor, which oversees the entire you know congregation. Sometimes men, sometimes women. There's often an appeal to worshiping in ways that make you feel good. Sometimes the worship services are very emotional, quote unquote, spirit filled, with a lot of you know shouting and raising of hands, etc. Some groups will take practices and beliefs out of the Old Testament and blend them together with those from the New Testament. Sometimes you'll find, you know, religious groups have all different kinds of quote-unquote ministries or involved in community outreach or teach all different kinds of things that are different from the denomination, you know, around the corner or down the block. Uh, all kinds of uh, mix of things. And I think if you kind of boil it all down, in a lot of cases, it's an appeal. Appeal to popularity, what people like with a variety of different things that are well beyond what the Bible says, you know, the local congregation should be doing. In fact, Brian, I think you brought my attention to a couple things that, uh, you know, you found out on the internet. Uh, for instance, here's, here's a quote, or a partial quote at least, from one, uh, you know, website from a you know, religious uh, group, church in the area. Uh, that says, you know, worship services at, and this, they name this particular group, typically last 75 minutes and are, are like parties that you've always been invited to that can't be described in words but must be experienced. You can come dressed just as you are, 
in your Sunday's best or jeans and t-shirt, we're not going to judge you. At worship experiences, interesting choice of words there, you'll find people of virtually every race, culture, ethnicity, and background. We won't do anything to embarrass you, but we will do everything we can to make you feel welcomed. Well, that sounds pretty good. Again, in this particular religious group, we'll lead you in worship with diverse and passionate music, student ministries, something called Harvest Kids, uh, which offers a safe, fun, and secure environment for your kids and teens. You'll leave energized, encouraged, inspired, and full of God's word from this particular pastor, they call him a bishop, a practical, funny, and life-giving message. Uh, another religious group talks about all different kinds of uh, ministries that they have. Another group here talks about that they cater to mothers of preschoolers, legal advice, kids with uh, academic secular education, psychological resources. I've seen some religious groups that offer tax preparation resources, retirement planning, uh, seminars. I mean, you name it. Uh, worship services, as I mentioned earlier, they're characterized by you know, standing and shouting and raising of hands and repetitious music and large stage productions, etc. A lot of things that the Bible basically either condemns or fails to authorize. And I know, Brian, that's kind of a kind of a broad brush. Uh, I would certainly encourage people, if, if I've said some things that sound odd or sound contradictory to what you think might be true or might be uh, impugning uh, you know the way you're worshiping in your local congregation we would encourage you to see some of our previous podcasts uh, i think episode number four uh, dealt to some degree with worshiping god uh, episode 17 and 18 dealt with the organization of the church as defined in the new testament so in general as a consequence of people using you know, what they like, man-made traditions, misunderstandings of the scriptures. We see all different kinds of things, as we've mentioned. It basically boils down to, you know, the, the pattern of worship of local congregations, as revealed in the New Testament, is not being followed. Worship services often, it's more emphasis is being put on emotional experiences and making the worshiper feel good instead of having a focus on worshiping God. We see church funds being misappropriated and not used according to what the Bible teaches the work of the church is. Uh, we see religious truth in terms of the work of the church, the organization of the church, men, leaders of the church being you know, distorted, compromised, etc. And ultimately, what is New Testament truth being you know, suppressed, Errors being perpetuated, all in the name of religion, all in the name of worship, all in the name of honoring God, unfortunately, in ways that he didn't ask to be you know, honored. Yeah, and fundamentally, Brian, you know, when you boil it all down, a couple of different passages, the religious de denominations we see today, the religious diversity that we see today is fundamentally contrary to what God, through the Bible, says he wants and expects. Uh, hey, Brian, can you go ahead and uh, read for us what uh, Jesus said in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21? Here it says, I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, 
that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. So certainly a prayer for unity, which we don't see today, sadly. You know, on the night that he was betrayed, one of Jesus' you know, final thoughts, a prayer for us, that we would be united. And sadly, far from that in, in today's uh, denominational culture. Similarly, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Notice again a similar appeal. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Unfortunately, what we see, like Paul saw then, you know, people rallying around different religious beliefs, rallying around different teachers, rallying around different concepts, all speaking different things, all kinds of divisions, very disjointed, uh, definitely not the same mind, definitely not the same judgment. And again, this, and again, this all comes back to searching for, quote unquote, the truth and trying to comply with it, right? Yeah, very good information. And once again, just seems like a, another example of how the intention is good, you know, offering things like psychological resources and, you know, different ministries to help other people. We as individuals, of course, the Bible teaches us can do all of these things if we'd like, but it just does not belong in the church. And it is really warped what people consider to be appropriate when it comes to worship and so forth. Appreciate those points. So why don't we shift gears now and just talk about, well, what does the truth from the Bible teach us? One of the things that the Bible, the truth, makes very clear is that God's laws are specific and unchanging. His truth is absolute. So like you said, Jeff, his truth from 50 years ago, 500 years ago, it's the same. It doesn't change just because man changed. So, you know, when you look at what Jesus said to Pilate, after Pilate said, what is truth? Uh, as we read a little bit earlier, John chapter 18, Jesus said, for this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So Jesus set the standard early on. Jesus said in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it talked about how God in the past spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but notice in verse 2, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. James chapter 1 and verse 17, it says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Notice here it says, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So God gave us the faith that's been once revealed, 2 Peter 1.3, where he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Jude 3 says that he gave us the faith one time, right? So there is no variation or changing or turning with God. He's not changing his standard. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 8 and 9 talks about how Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it goes on to say, do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. So that's a pretty powerful verse. The standard is the same today, yesterday, and forever. Don't allow yourself to be carried about with these strange doctrines. And man will create 
his own standard of truth for a variety of reasons. We've identified some of these today, whether it be cultural pressures, cultural shifts in thinking, good intentions to help others out when, once again, the Bible does not authorize it. So some passages that touch on this, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 29 tells us, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So we were created in God's image. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he made us all upright, but we on our own decided to make changes to God's standard. 1 Corinthians 14, tells us, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. And then, Jeff, you alluded to Judges earlier, you know, after Joshua died and the elders that were after him died. We are told in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10 that there was a generation that arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. So some of the challenges that we see today is that children are just not taught the biblical standard because their parents don't believe it and their parents don't follow it. Well, what will logically happen when that occurs? People will do what's right in their own eyes, and they will not teach their children to follow the Lord. So the final passage here is what's said in Judges 17 and verse 6. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So Jeff... I guess, once again, if we look at history, this should not be a shock, right, that this standard changes when you don't respect and teach God's standard. Very true. Oh, and even within the history of our own country, you know, originally, back in the 1600s, 1700s, a lot of groups came over here to the United States, you know, from Europe for religious purposes, fleeing religious persecution, you know, there was a sense, if you will, of kind of Judeo-Christian ethics and that got, got kind of woven into some degree into, you know, the Declaration of Independence and our laws, etc. Uh, but it certainly seems like within the last, oh, I don't know, 50, 75 years that, you know, a generation has arisen, so to speak, that many of them, you know, don't know the Lord. They subscribe to evolution as taught in public schools. And we see happening today what happened in the time of the judges. Everyone is starting to do what's right in their own eyes. And again, you know, moral chaos uh, results. And, and to take it a step further, they're condemning those who do not, right? Uh, true. Good point. So now I think what we want to kind of make this a little bit more practical, so to speak, with some uh, applications, uh, specifically things like, first of all, beware of any kind of new standards of truth or different standards of truth, you know, the threat to the truth, uh, to the truth as expressed in the Bible, you know, is always present. We must always be on guard. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to, now watch it, the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. Now, within that context, you know, cheat, uh, the Greek word underneath that, to spoil or take captive, to lead away as, you know, stolen goods, to seduce uh, through, again, tradition of men and or philosophy. And certainly we see that you know, in the worldly sense, leading people astray with, you know, secular humanism, ev natural evolution, etc. But we also kind of see traditions of men getting, you know, woven into religious organizations as well. 
uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be cursed. And then he goes on to repeat it, just as we have said before. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be cursed. Now, certainly with religious groups today, there are a lot of different gospels, I would assert, being preached. And when I say gospel, I'm thinking a plan of salvation. You know, from Unitarian Universalists that say, you know, everyone is saved, you don't have to do anything, to, you know, faith, you know, grace only, faith only, to, you know, uh, ignoring other aspects of, you know, steps of salvation. Anyway, all different kinds of gospels. Be careful. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. Uh, certainly, we most definitely do not, cannot, should not, modify, redefine, add to, or take away from the truth. And again, I'm referring to you know, Bible, Bible teaching. In any way, you know, we shouldn't let our standards of morality change based on emotions or our friends or our family or our teachers or social media or cultural trends that only complete obedience to God's truth uh, is acceptable. You know, we saw that with the Israelites, with, you know, Moses in the wilderness. We saw it at various other times throughout biblical history, including, you know, the sons of Eli the priest or Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. Uh, I'm reminded of, of two key verses there, when referring to trying to change the truth, the Bible. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Or Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, at the very end of the New Testament, anyone who adds to or takes away from the words of the book, uh, in that specific context, the book of Revelation, but in principle, to the entire Bible, God shall take away his part from the book of life. Now, don't redefine the truth. Well, what about, what is our responsibility to the truth? Well, first of all, we need to understand it. You know, study it, understand it. Second uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. First Thessalonians 5, 21, test or prove, depending on your translation, all things. Hold fast what is good. We are to defend the truth. Uh, Jude 3, earnestly contend for the faith. Uh, Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them uh, in terms of putting forth the, the truth of God's word. Uh, even our worship you know, must be in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. Uh, God is a spirit. Of course, Jesus is talking here. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Truth, according to the Bible, according to the New Testament, uh, John 17, 17, sanctify them. By your truth, your word is truth, as Brian, I think you noted earlier. So a number of very practical things that we can do with respect to the truth. Be on our guard, or false truth, if that makes sense. That's kind of an oxymoron, but hopefully you understand what I mean. Don't try to modify the truth. Study it, embrace it, obey it, defend it, worship in it. Just a number of different, very practical things we need to keep in mind.
Yeah, those are definitely very practical. I guess, Jeff, now we want to shift gears and uh, to finish up, just answer a few questions related to this subject on the truth. And so I guess uh, the first question you have is for me. Yep. So Benji writes in, what is the right religion? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it's another universal question, right? That uh, people who are spiritually minded will ask, what's the right religion? Especially given the diversity of religions, and I guess we're talking about Christianity, under the canopy of Christianity, you know, on every street corner, you know, different buildings, different names, different, all different kinds of differences. So yeah, which one's right? Yeah, good question. So let's see what the Bible has to say about that. So it really starts with asking, do they follow God's standard? And so, you know, the the Bible teaches us that the only religion that's acceptable to God is one that's based on his law, the law of Christ, which is also known by the New Testament. And, you know, Jesus talked about in Matthew 16, for instance, I will build my church. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18, it makes clear that Jesus is the head of the church. You know, when you look at the church that the Bible talks about, that is the Lord's church, Jesus's church, that is much different than the religions that we see today, where if you were to look at the different denominations and the different religions that are around, if you study their origin, what you'll find is that they were established by men, and in some cases, women. So if you go and, and you belong to the Baptist Church, the Mormon Church, the Jehovah's Witnesses, if you're Pentecostal, you're not going to see their practices nor their founder mentioned in the Bible, because they founded those religions well after the Bible was established. And not only that, as we mentioned, it's Christ Church. So, you know, the church that we're to be members of, Christ Church must, as we said, practice exactly what the church practiced in the first century that we read about in the Bible. On our website, biblequestions.org, we do have a section on that site entitled Seeking a Church. Uh, You can find if you select the topics section and go down to the, the subject Seeking a Church, where we go into much more detail, right, Jeff, on what it means and how do you find the right church. Exactly. And there's a lot to that question, kind of a bend question. And I think for our listeners, Brian kind of went through, kind of hit the high points. And likely you might have heard something that was either new or that you might disagree with. So definitely I would uh, likewise encourage our listeners to you know go to the website and look under that topics, seeking a church section for a lot more detail to include uh, scripture references that, that you can then uh, study. Yeah, next question for you, Jeff, comes from Hayden. And he asks, he says, my question concerns a wide and narrow gate discussed in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Are the majority of us really going to hell? He says the the passage implies that work is needed for salvation. In order to enter the narrow gate, you need to prove your worth to God, even if you have faith in him. But doesn't the Bible say that salvation is by faith alone and not by works? Good question. And that, I think, reflects a very common view among a lot of Protestant denominations, especially, that, you know, grace alone, faith alone, works have nothing to do with it. But basically, salvation is by nothing alone. (laughs) You know, it is grace. It is faith. It is obedience, which a lot of groups tend to skip over that last part. But let's kind of come back. He mentions Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, 
And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. The many versus the few. In fact, there's a companion passage over in Luke chapter 13, verse 24. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So you take these two passages and bring them together, and basically they, they teach a number of very essential foundational things regarding truth and regarding salvation. You know, first of all, that many will seek it, but the initial entry to that goal of salvation, the gate, if you will, is narrow, restricted, difficult to find. Partially because there's another gate or another entry or another opening that is very wide and easy to find. And, you know, kind of within our religious world today, you know, we, we see that kind of portrayed as, well, just accept Jesus as your personal Savior. And that is definitely in stark contrast to steps of salvation. That becoming initially saved or the gate to enter into salvation, so to speak. That's some very specific restrictive steps as revealed in God's world. Steps that a lot of people either don't realize, don't understand, don't like, or have been deceived into thinking aren't necessary. Briefly, you know, some of those steps are like, well, you know, Jesus not only existed, not only was Jesus a good man or teacher, but he was deity in the flesh. You know, that's a stumbling block for like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. The fact that we are all guilty of sin and must repent to be saved. That's a stumbling block for the Unitarian Universalists, as well as the proud, or people who view themselves as being just good moral people, immersion in water in order to have one's sins washed away and be forgiven. You know, that's a huge stumbling block for a lot of religious groups, as we said, that teach faith only, which is just about all you know, Protestant denominations. So not only is the gate, the true gate to salvation, kind of narrow, hard to find amongst this wide, easy gate, but the resulting path or the lifestyle or manner of life uh, to stay saved is likewise narrow, constrained, difficult, because there's another path beside it that is wide and it's easy. You know, as you said, Brian, you know, remaining saved requires ongoing diligence, ongoing study to try and understand the truth and obedience. And again, a lot of people, you know, don't like that, don't want it. You know, they like the grace only. They like the once saved, always saved. They like the works have nothing to do with your salvation, which basically confuses meriting salvation with humble obedience to God. And again, a big stumbling block for Protestant denominations. Uh, you hear words like, come as you are, join the church of your choice. And, you know, we're all on different paths, but we're all going to the same place. Well, not according to the scriptures. Uh, in fact, uh, some quick uh, passages here. Uh, Matthew 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Or likewise, Luke 6, 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. There you go, three ingredients. And to cap it all off in terms of, you know, grace only, faith only, once saved, always saved, all of that. The broad way, I would characterize that. How about James chapter 2? 
Verse 17. Faith by itself, is, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Which coming all the way back to the original question about, you know, doesn't the Bible teach faith alone? Well, it does. It says it's dead. A dead faith. Faith by itself alone. James 2, verse 17. There you go, Brian. Yeah, very good. And some important considerations. In fact, as we look back now and we wrap up this podcast, we covered a whole lot, didn't we, Jeff? A lot of different things. Indeed. Yeah, just scratching the surface. (laughs) Yeah, and it just shows you how important and robust this subject is because the truth has been assaulted since the early days from some of the Jews denying that there was a change in law, a change in the covenant. Throughout history, all these different cultures and civilizations that ultimately hate the light, as Jesus said, because it exposes their evil deeds. And so therefore, they set out to change it so they can live their life how they would like. So we just ask our listeners to please consider these things and, of course, compare anything we said uh, with what God's Word teaches. So, Jeff, any other final remarks from you before I point our listeners back to our website for more material? Nope. I think we've given them all different kinds of things to uh, consider, at least tease them, so to speak, on these different topics. So, yeah, definitely point them back to the website where there's a ton of more material. Yes, there sure is. So BibleQuestions.org, as we touched on a little while ago, if you go to the topic section, there's a couple other areas that you can look at. Uh, one, uh, you can select the letter T for truth, where you'll find a dozen or more articles or previous questions that have been answered about the truth. If you select the letter A, you'll see a bunch of articles on authority. Uh, under our lessons button, you'll see there's a Bible basics course that you can sign up for. Uh, it's a really nice course. It's con- it consists of eight lessons. You literally can read through and answer the questions online, and then click the Submit button. That actually gets sent to me. I'm happy to grade it and send you back the link for the next lesson. So if you want to look at some just Bible fundamentals, that's a great course. We have another one also called How to Interpret the Bible, which is a second longer course. Once again, these are just free correspondence courses to help you increase your knowledge of God's Word. And then also uh, we touched on the Steps to Salvation uh, where there's several different topics under that to consider. And uh, same with seeking a church. If you're looking for the right religion or the right church to be a part of, that would be a great section for you to look at. So encourage you to do that. Please take a look at that information. And we appreciate your time and listening to this podcast. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website at biblequestions.org, where you can find over a thousand scripture-filled articles on a wide variety of Bible topics, along with about two dozen free Bible study lessons and other Bible study aids. Plus, you can submit a Bible question to us to get a personal response within a couple of days. Check it all out at biblequestions.org.